0: Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui in Ohio. On WGRN, 94.1 FM, Columbus. In Palenville, New York, on 102.9 FM, WLPP. In Bellingham, Washington, on KZAX, 94.9 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media, Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, G-D-P-R, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Glanket, blanketing the globe five days a week, or blanketing. It's already late in the week, isn't it? The broadcast is usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but we're giving him and Desi one more precious day off. I'm Angie Cuero of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams, with 2016 kicked firmly in the butt and out the door, We now wallow in the dreaded 2017. When you are feeling lost, there is nothing as helpful as a map. A map can tell you where you are, let you get an impartial grip on your real environs, then help you figure out the road to where you want to be. And that's what I want to bring you this hour. I've talked to three people immersed in activism and journalism in three very specific areas we need to focus on to keep the country decently Livable during our current national emergency. And I'm about to bring you conversations with Lisa Graves of the Center for Media and Democracy about beating back the American Legislative Exchange Council, with Dave Johnson of People's Action looking at trade and wages, and with Katie Klebusik of the Katie Speaks and the Establishment about holding on to the gains we've made in women's rights while continuing to fight for more. One thought before we jump into all that over the weekend, Van Jones said on CNN that the Democrats' Clinton era is over. He said if we're the party for the underdogs everywhere, we win. Everything Lisa, Dave, and Katie have to say this hour can be used to elevate the rights and lives of everyone in the U.S., whether they voted for Trump or not. Bearing that in mind, We'll dive right into the first building block for a new year in activism with Lisa Graves. Let's talk a little bit about ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. They're in a strange position with Donald Trump in office. They've always supported the conservatives, the Republicans, and all of a sudden they've got shall we say, a hot-headed property in the White House, and I don't even think they know what's going to happen. Lisa Graves probably knows more than most people about what has happened with ALEC and how to continue fighting them. She's an American progressive. She serves right now as the executive director of the Center for Media and Democracy, and that is the hot point for anti-ALEC activism. Lisa, it's so good to talk to you again. Happy New Year.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, ALEC is uh, almost always up to no good. It's the group where Legislators actually vote as equals with um, corporate lobbyists on bills before they get introduced into uh, law in um, in states across the country. And the reports we received from the ALEC meeting uh, in December was that there was um, a high level of joy that uh, Trump had uh, been the apparent winner, at least of the Electoral College, even though he's the majority loser mm. uh, in this country. Um, and uh, and there was um sort of boasting that ALEC uh, was going to have influence at all levels of government uh, in Congress uh, with their alums, as well as in the administration um, uh, due to uh, the way that ALEC has sort of formed a a minor league team for, in some ways, the major league players that are on the federal scene. And so um, with some of the changes in the legislatures, the state legislatures, um, ALEC members uh, have a majority in a number of state houses and, There are a number of um, governors who are Alec alums. And so um, at least as of as of uh, the incoming uh, class of legislators and governors being sworn in, um, the Republican Party will have a trifecta in 25 states, meaning they hold both the governor, the governorship and uh, both houses of legislature in the case of Nebraska, the sole house. Um, and where the GOP has a trifecta, that typically means that ALEC legislators are in the driver's seat. So we anticipate a lot of bad legislation that's corporate pre-approved, corporate voted on and uh, on the corporate wish list to be streaming through state legislatures and through our federal legislature with the help of the cronies of ALEC and the Kochs who fund ALEC um, behind the scenes.
0: Well, let's talk about the Kochs' uh, attitude toward Donald Trump. I'm sure they'd rather have had him in there than Hillary Clinton. But if I recall correctly, didn't David Koch say early on that he, he was not going to endorse Trump?
1: Well, They did uh, say publicly that they weren't going to endorse him, but they spent a lot of money really um, pushing on the races in the uh, for the Senate in a number of swing states. And that those efforts, their um, ground game, the shadow party that is the Koch party basically – um really buoyed um avoid um Trump in a lot of states other than Nevada. And so, you know, the the Koch have been friendly, at least David Koch has been friendly with Donald Trump since election night. And um they have a number of people who are their acolytes, who are their henchmen, um, or, you know, they're they're basically their team that are now in key positions within the administration. And one of those people is obviously Mike Pence, who um, who has hired Mark Short, who's the former head of, of the Koch's Freedom Partners, which is their fancy name for the Billionaires Club that they created. Um, and uh, Pence is also a, a longtime fan of ALEC and even spoke at ALEC's uh, meeting last summer. And so the Kochs are positioned, you know, through ALEC and through their other um, funding of a number of politicians over the years to play a key role in trying to destroy, you know, substantial protections for Americans' rights, including uh, America's interests in having a cleaner environment, cleaner air, cleaner water, and having a sane policy uh, to address the crisis of global climate change.
0: Well, so that puts us in, in a good position to understand what we're up against. Tell me what our strengths are going into the fights coming up for 2017.
1: Well, I think that, you know, you do have a, a number of situations here where, um I, you have a majority. Let me just start here. You have a majority of Americans who did not vote for the extreme agenda that Trump represents. Right. Um, actually, a solid majority. Trump is the basically the worst loser to win the presidency in the history of our country uh, in terms of the number of people who didn't vote for his agenda. And so what you have is a situation in which massive overreach is going on. You can see by the nature of the extreme people he's choosing for key positions within his White House uh, and within the cabinet. And so I think that we're poised for a massive backlash against this extreme agenda that a majority of Americans actually didn't vote for. And so I think when you see the agenda starting to manifest, um, whether it's through congressional measures or in some of these states, um, I think you're going to see a lot of pushback by people saying either I didn't vote and this is not what I want or I didn't vote for this and this is not acceptable. This is not Consistent with America's progress, consistent with America's values. And that's in a number of areas, including workers' rights, where there's a groundswell of support uh, for increased minimum wage. And here Trump tries to put in charge of the labor department, someone who's hostile to um, raising the minimum wage, someone who's a franchisor, who's basically part of the industry that has really tried to stamp down on people's uh, wages in this country. Uh, An adamantly, you know, anti-union uh, administration is, is unfolding. You have an administration that is, you know, way out of step with the American people on environmental protections and protecting our our earth and our water. Um, You have an administration that is uh, choosing someone to lead the Department of Education who's been a strong proponent of vouchers, which Americans have rejected at every turn Mm -hmm. because they don't because we Americans don't think our tax dollars should be going to fund someone else's religious education, which is the root interest that Betsy DeVos, who's one of the billionaires that are part of the Koch. A club of billionaires, you know, want to transform our country into sort of a theocracy in that way. She wants to redefine public education to mean public money going to support private religious indoctrination. Um, And so this extreme agenda is going to be unfolding. And and what needs to happen is that people need to be having heart to heart conversations with each other about what's happening and about the fact that we as Americans can resist this and we must.
0: Well, let's talk about the attitude that people have who. Many people thought that the Democrats were going to win. Uh, many people found out after the fact that surely from popular vote, uh, Hillary Clinton did win a pretty decisive victory. And it was the Electoral College that took it out of her hands. We can argue about the role of you know, the Russians later on. Point being, I think a lot of people have now, for better or worse, derived the lesson that it really doesn't matter what they wanted or what they fought for or what they voted for there's a certain fatalism. It, correct me if I'm wrong. This is what I feel that I'm, I'm seeing manifested throughout public conversation. There's a certain fatalism about how much difference it makes what we believe and what we do. So from an activism point of view, how do you address and overcome that? Or am I overstating its importance?
1: Well, no, I, th- I think, I think what's, un- what's unfolding has been really overwhelming to a lot of people. I think there's been a, a collective grief in some ways on the part of a number of Americans who feel um, you know, really crushed by this bigot who is ascending uh to the White House and by, you know, all that he represents and all the crooked, genuine crookedness that his whole legacy as a businessman represents. And there is a feeling um, of hopelessness, but that feeling of hopelessness will enable further extremism. And so, you know, you really, I think it's something that we really have to challenge. It's very difficult and it's very um common and, and typical to be Really faced with tremendous worries in a time like this. This is a, it's one of the most uh, challenging and troubling times, certainly in my lifetime in this country, and I think um, in in many decades for our our nation to have this type of uh, kleptocracy taking hold at the top. And um, the reality is is that there are going to be a lot of battles, and some will be lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you don't you don't go home because. Um, your values aren't, you know, necessarily vindicated at a particular, on a particular election day. These are about core values for us as a people and as Americans in terms of the diverse country that, that has made us stronger and the values we, um, hold in terms of the, the, the need to protect children and make our planet a a more hospitable place going forward versus a less hospitable place. And so, um, I guess the, the short, the shortest part of that would be to say, You know, this isn't a policy battle. This isn't just some piece of legislation where you may win or lose and you feel like you're disappointed and you go home. This is this is about our our future, our destiny. And so I think we have no choice but to stand up and speak out and and to realize that worry uh, never made anything better uh, ever. But Mm -hmm. action has. And we just have to put one foot in front of another and um, and stand up and speak out where we can and speak up how we can. Um, and recognize that we actually are a majority. A majority of Americans support the progressive agenda at basically every turn um, when the issues are voted on. And um, unfortunately, politicians are poor, poor proxies in some ways for those issues. But we are the majority and what we need to do is become a stronger majority progressive values. Um, you know, we need to organize, uh, dig deep, and, and try to turn the tide uh, in the coming years because otherwise, um, otherwise they will expand. Um, And they will entrench these right wing regressive forces and um, and it will become much more painful for everybody. And so um, I think that it's easy to feel like maybe your vote doesn't count because maybe it actually wasn't counted Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe it was distorted in the way. Obviously, the big money um, is distorting our elections. But the fact is, is that um, organizing isn't just about election days. Organizing is about what people do day in and day out every week. Uh, of the year. And we have a lot to fight for to um make this century a, a century of peace versus a century of war. And to, you know, shake off some of these really regressive extremist uh views, these racist views, these sexist views that Trump represents and move forward. Because, you know, we had eight years under President Obama, who was certainly not perfect, but who um who who did a lot of things right and some things wrong. And now, um, just at the turn of a dime at the Electoral College, we are facing um, you know, a really extreme divergence uh, mm-hmm. from the path that we're on. And um, that path is one that, that I think most people would prefer. And certainly that's what the, what the voting shows. But beyond that, you know, 94 million Americans, uh, an estimated, um, estimated number, didn't vote. And so there are a lot of people who didn't vote who may think that it doesn't matter. And now we're about to see how much it does matter when other people vote and vote against your interests. And so we have a lot of work to do to build on that majority to make it um, much harder to defeat in the future.
0: Let me ask you one more question before I let you go. And I I want people to be able to visualize what victory looks like. So can you tell me a big win that we've had against ALEC in the past year that we might hope to duplicate or add on to this coming year?
1: Well, there's there's two things, actually. I would just say in the past year, we actually – uh, collectively, through the, a number of organizations and through our investigative work, we were collectively able to push um, Ford Motor Company out of Alec. Uh, we were able to push Enterprise Rental Company, the biggest car rental company in the world out of Alec. We were able to push Expedia, uh, one of the biggest travel sites in the world out of Alec, uh, along with AARP, which represents millions and millions of seniors. And so that was very successful. But But there's another thing that I want to flag, which is that on Election Day in Florida, as Florida went to Trump, something else happened that really wasn't reported, which is reported widely, which is that uh, a major effort to amend the Florida Constitution to make it harder for Floridians to get access to solar energy was defeated. And it was defeated in part because of investigative reporting, our work to expose how part of the Koch network was embroiled in basically lying to the American people, trying to tell them that the solar amendment was really pro-solar when it was anti-solar. And um. Um, the audio that we obtained uh, went all around the state of Florida. And ultimately, that effort to amend the Constitution in Florida that was on track to win up to 80 percent of the vote uh, failed to meet the threshold to amend the Florida Constitution. That was a that happened to be actually a bipartisan, transpartisan coalition of people who rejected the corporatism that that amendment, that that deceptive amendment represented, and it and they did so on election day, a day in which in Trump, in which Trump carried Florida. So I suppose you could say that's a bit of a mixed message coming out of Florida. But to me, what it shows is that when people um, are shown the truth, see the powerful, compelling narrative of how these corporations are trying to distort public policy to their own interests against the interests of ordinary people, we can prevail. Uh, and we, and when they have a choice like that on a policy issue, we most often do prevail.
0: Lisa Graves, she served once upon a time as Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice, Chief Counsel for Nominations at the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Nowadays, she heads up the Center for Media and Democracy, keeping a sharp eye on and advocating against ALEC. And Lisa, it's always a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much.
1: Angie, thanks so much for having me on. Happy New Year.
0: And to you. Find out more about Lisa's work at prwatch.org. Next up, pressing for full autonomy for women with the most women-hostile White House in modern history. Katie Klubusik is next. I'm Angie Coiro on the broadcast. <laughs>
1: Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you.
0: It is the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coyro. Looking into some of the areas that we need to push forward into 2017, some of those may be downright pleasant. haven't found any of those yet, so let's <laughs> tackle some of the ones that will be on the tougher side. Katie Klubusik has been on top of what's happening with women's health issues, women's choice issues. In fact, she's on top of a lot more than that, but that is what I brought her in to talk about with us today. She is with the establishment. She has her own radio show, Katie Speaks. Katie, it's good to talk to you again. Thank
2: you. I'm glad to be back on Brad's show and talking with you again.
0: Well, let's talk about what is confrontational women. Something that brought this to mind for me, although not directly related, when North Carolina came up with the bathroom bill to be more concerned with who uses what bathroom as opposed to, say, who might be hungry in their Mm -hmm. state. And under Barack Obama, they suffered a pushback from around the country. They suffered monetarily. But Texas has just said, you know what, we're going to jump on that train. We're going to look at our own bathroom bill. And I thought, oh, God, There go women's rights, there goes personal choice, there goes all kinds of stuff because the advent of Trump looks to be enabling people in a way that at least under Barack Obama – got some discouragement on the public level. Do, do you Are you seeing the same connection there that I am?
2: Yeah, it's a real problem. I have a piece coming out for Truth Out probably this week, where I talked to a lot of advocates and, and people who do the pushback on these laws, right? We've, you know, we've definitely seen uh, reproductive rights and health attacked over the last, you know, four or five years in particular, you know, even under this president, but we at least had a friendly attorney general. Uh, we had had, uh, a president who had trouble saying the word abortion, but was at least, you know, fundamentally, in general, you know, in favor of most reproductive, you know, health care. We had advocates. He listened to people. Right, that was super helpful. Even the Democratic Party, as as a reproductive justice movement led primarily by young women of color, has built. We even saw the Democratic Party invite those people in to put together their platform for this election. So we mm-hmm. had the first Democratic platform that had. Affirmatively, call, affirmatively called for the end of the Hyde Amendment, which is the prohibition for federal funding uh, to cover abortion care. And as that movement was growing, we now have the most anti-abortion administration in history. As much as Donald Trump is sort of scary in a flamboyant way, uh, the vice president elect from my home state of Indiana is actually a lot more terrifying. He's a very effective administrator, is Pence. Yes. Uh, effective at passing things that make you and I uh, cringe and make marginalized people's lives harder. And frankly, you've caused uh, an HIV outbreak in the middle of the state because of all the defunding of Planned Parenthood and the closing of the clinics there. But this administration as a whole, all the way down to who they've appointed as an attorney general and their health and human services administration has really told us before he even puts his hand on that book and takes the oath of office that one of their big policy priorities is to in every way that they can make things harder for women, for trans people, you know, and that's what's going on with the bathroom bills is that they're they're using you and i and our supposed need for protection from transgender women right people that this group see as actually men which is not the case but that's how they see it Um, they want us protected right our privacy and protection i'm tired of that being used like my i don't need protection and privacy problems from my trans sisters, right? I If you really, right. really want to protect my privacy and my rights and my safety, you would be outlawing Republican men.
0: Exactly, and this fits in with George Lakoff's whole theory that the people who vote conservative are looking for paternalism. They're looking Mm -hmm. for the strict father figure. And the father figure is not only telling them what to do, but is doing it in their best interest, is doing it to take care of them.
2: Right. That has been the shift in the anti-choice movement over... Probably the last six or seven years we've seen them go from protecting the fetus, which only got so many people on board, to having to pretend that they're caring for women's health, right? Like that was mm-hmm. what the HB2 law in Texas was grounded on. And by the time it wound its way all the way to the Supreme Court, Justice Breyer looked them straight in the face and said, if you are passing these, you know, abortion restrictions for people's health, you need to prove that it improves people's people's health, and they were fundamentally unable to do so, and in a win for science in general, and possibly even uh, my friend Jessica Piclo at... Rewire, who um, is their VP of law in the court, she's just brilliant on on these issues, thinks that a lot of his decision there may actually have good bearing on voting rights cases in the future, because he made the point of saying you have to prove that this does the thing that you say you pass the law for. So if you say you pass the law for privacy or safety or someone's health in your challenge now, you have to prove that that is actually the case, that the law does the thing that you said it's supposed to do. Um, and yes. we know most of these laws don't do that, right? It's how, you know, HB2 got overturned. And so in that paternalism, we're seeing it break down in the courts, but it's going to take a lot longer before the internalized misogyny breaks down. And and really the racism that, that is inherent in our, in our culture still, you know, white women put Trump in office, right? Like we've, we voted for him. Um, and some of that Yes, That has to do with racism we don't address, right? White people are uncomfortable Mm -hmm. talking about it, and, and we need to do it more. But also because there really are women, and this was probably me until 10 years ago, right? Like up through my 20s, where I had an easier time trusting, you know, a man. Because he, like that said, authority figure to me. Thanks to my upbringing. And I think that there's a lot right. of that.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, under a Trump administration, because, you know, the gist of this is to look forward, we're going to have the dual effort to be made to bring women along who already lean toward choice, who already mm-hmm. lean toward the progressive side. And even amongst them, going to have to educate them in a way that we really didn't have to do under an Obama or under a, a Bill Clinton where there was a guiding principle that we were moving closer to full humanity for women.
2: Right. This is definitely a wake up call for a fair number of people with a lot of privilege. Um, There were plenty of people who suffered under Obama and under um, Clinton, but they're they're the people that tend not to have a lot of time to advocate for themselves. You know, the people who are working multiple jobs and low income people like it's you know, I can speak as someone who has spent most of my adult life in poverty. It is exhausting. It's just the Mm -hmm. the everyday things that you have to do just to keep up and stay afloat, don't leave you a lot of time to advocate on your own behalf. And frankly, if you are someone with um, with a mental illness or a chronic illness or ha- have or do live in poverty, bizarrely, um, those things are seen as disqualifiers for you speaking on those issues. So it can be a challenge. Right. It can be a challenge under... Under an administration or, you know, a governor, like let's talk local. Local is important, right? Under mm-hmm. a, a governor or city council or a president who is ostensibly understanding and empathetic. It can be hard enough to get your issues heard in front of them, right? And now we right. have an administration that says they don't even want to listen to security briefings, let alone care whether or not I can eat tomorrow. And that understandably, is causing people a lot of distress. This is going to be a time where we have to make sure if we're not just going to be the resistance and harm reduction, but if we're going to make some progress in some places, people have to be more considerate about caring for each other, right? We are going to need stronger networks um, in our personal lives and in our activism communities to um, to make sure that we're cared for as we're doing this work. Because you know, as much as I love to be positive, it is going to be harder. It is harder Mm -hmm. work to do this, to do this harm reduction than what we were all hoping to be, which was to push, you know, a progressive president to the left, right? That can be exciting and invigorating. I was like, really (laughs) into it. Like, how far left can we push Hillary? This is a different kind of energy. And we can do it. Um, But we really, really are going to need people who typically sit on the sidelines to get involved.
0: So let's let's pick some some points out of there. And we need to set up self-care and we need to set up caring for each other because we need to harness everybody's ability to be active and to be effectively active. And we also have to be aware that the temperament is going to be different under Trump than it would have been under Hillary Clinton. And then it then it was under Barack Obama. Moving forward from there, let's talk about some specifics. Obviously, the Supreme Court is going to be key to things not just during the Trump administration, but many years carrying forward What's in our arsenal and what can we do to try to make the next Supreme Court appointment as painless as possible or as as the least harmful it can be?
2: We're going to have to get really, really active calling our representatives. And this is one of those things um, where I'm mostly talking to people in blue states, um, but also... You know, we don't like to think of it this way, but there are plenty of Republicans that don't really like Trump. I mean, we saw it during the election, right? People reluctantly, you know, getting on board or refusing to campaign for him altogether. Um, You know, this is something that can definitely be done right now. There's a movement and a campaign going on with the organization All Above All, and they're Mm -hmm. one of my favorites. They put together a huge ad buy because Congress comes back before the inauguration, right? The newly elected representatives. And they're pushing. They're pushing people, like, the 100 members who sent the letter to Trump demanding the end of, of the Hyde Amendment. Like, we don't expect him to follow through on that, but they're making the point that they're not going to sit down and take it. And that's who we mm-hmm. need. We're going to need Republican-style obstructionism from our Democratic representatives, and we're going to need some of the Republicans from places like, you know, you and I are in California, and my representative is, is a Democrat but there are mm-hmm. some republicans in this state and Daryl Issa aside most of them most of them tend to be they would be Eisenhower Republicans if that was still a thing. Right. Like they don't yeah. really care about what you do in your doctor's office, or your bedroom. And they think we should fund schools and roads, but like maybe lower taxes a little. Right. Like they're, they're those right. folks that that largely don't exist in office anymore. Um, but those are the people we can be appealing to. Right. So if people in red states and blue states can check their representatives and see what their voting records are, if they have histories of being reasonable on court and judicial appointments, that's who we need to go to because we're going to need some of them to stand up to him as well.
0: You brought up Mike Pence. You and I are both from Indiana. <laughs> we both we both got the hell out of Indiana and came to California. But when we talk about Mike Pence, one of the specters I don't hear a lot of people talking about yet is there's conjecture that Donald Trump was in this to become President Trump. And then he'll happily either really go away. I mean, honestly, get out of the office somehow or yeah. at least passively go away. And it's going to be Mike Pence who's in charge. What do we know about advocating against a President Pence, either in name or in fact, how do we work against him once he takes the reins of powers, if in fact that happens? Yeah,
2: I see this as sort of a Bush-Cheney administration, right? Um, though at least Bush had run a state and and presumably knew how a bill became law. So I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but he was much more qualified than Donald Trump um, to, to sit in that chair. <laughs> uh, the I think that the most important thing is for people to know about him. We don't talk about vice presidents all that much, uh, unless, unless sadly, um, or or not sadly, unless excitingly, they have they're they're memeable, right? I think that's one of the things Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss most about this administration um, is, (laughs) is for all his faults is how memeable Joe Biden was, because we really are not going to get any fun stuff um, out of Trump and Pence in an LOL sob way, but not actually fun. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's really important that we don't stop saying his name, um, not just for this administration, but for those of us who are looking beyond. I thought that he would run if Hillary won. I thought he would run in 2020 against her. That would have been smart strategy for the Republican Party because you know, Pence was a radio host before he was in Congress. For people who don't know, Pence is how we got the fiscal cliff. He's the original defund Planned Parenthood guy. He's the one that added that amendment to the budget, uh, and then was promptly elected uh, to the state house in Indiana, and was you know safely ensconced there when the fiscal cliff actually happened. Right? He helped set yeah. it up and then ran away. And he's very good at that. And because of because of his ability to mostly be measured in his speech, um, he's better than most right now about knowing what to not say in front of a microphone mm-hmm. and because he's a good he's an effective administrator and would be better at doing things like putting a staff together it is terrifying the idea that it's possible That he could at some point run for president after this and having been uh, a governor and a vice president, that means that he would have held the two elective offices that overwhelmingly in our country's history lead to the presidency. The only third category there is the military, and that's mostly from our early early days because our only leaders were military because we had not been around very long. So people need to really pay attention to Pence because I promise you he's not going to go away. He's too smart for that. He didn't say yes to being Trump's VP because he super likes Trump. He said yes because it's good for his political future. And I promise you he is going to run for president. So we need to make sure that we're holding him accountable for the things that probably are coming from him in this administration, even if we don't block them now we have to have a long game strategy um, as progressives or Democrats or however, um, you know, the people that are listening identify. We need to make sure we keep track of him because he's this is not going to be the only White House office he tries to occupy.
0: There's something, Katie, that I think is critical moving forward, and that is making sure that the people who speak for us in all forms of media have some kind of support. People on the left are notoriously broke. I'm broke. You're broke. Uh, It's it's what we do. (laughs) But we have to share what we have. You do work for the establishment. Uh, and a, for those who are... I'm a
2: contributor, right? They don't have any full-time staff. Well, I mean, they do. The editors, editors are full-time staff. Um, but they, very, they made a decision early on to make sure that they had as many voices as possible. So they didn't hire staff writers. Um, they also very much wanted to... Change the way freelancing is done. Um, they mm-hmm. pay everyone um, from the people that do their columns and their art to their contributors. They pay on time. Um, and when they launched a year and a half ago, they pretty much doubled the standard accepted you know rate for you know an essay for like your standard you know op-ed essay piece. It's a good place to support, and you can do that just by clicking and sharing. And I'm going to be their primary Trump coverer uh, starting right before the inauguration. Uh, so they're a place that um, is good to is good to share. And they've been really, really supportive uh, of me, of my writing on everything from non-monogamy to mental health, to poverty. In fact, when they brought me on board before they launched um, in our Skype meeting, my editor, Kelly, told me, she was like, you know, we really liked your orgasm essay and your stuff on poverty. And I was like, I'm home, all right, like, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, But they really, they make a real effort to have as many marginalized voices as possible. Um, The editors there are very, are are great. Highlighting issues that don't get talked about, and this is going to be a time where that's as important as it's ever been, and where I'm sure you were going, most people who are independent content creators, they provide a lot of infrastructure, which is good because it saves us from having to do that. But most of us don't get paid for that. So almost everyone I know who does some sort of, you know, content creation also has either a PayPal or a Patreon page. Um, That's um, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. And so if there's, if there's an, a writer or a host that you really like Um, you can, in addition to sharing their content, you can go support them directly. And I really encourage people to do that. Even if all you can toss in is a dollar a month, my dollar a month subscribers pay my podcast hosting fees. I mean, it's really important. It can be good to look and see just the tangible reminder that people support what you're doing. And you're right. In a Trump America, independent media got even more important.
0: Yes, it is. It is. And I'm glad you carved out some time in the midst of all your work. That's Katie Klabusik. She's a contributing writer for the establishment. She's host of the Katie Speak Show on Netroots Roots Radio. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie underscore speak.
2: Thank you very much. You love. To. And thank you so thank much you. for having me on.
0: <laughs> Trump might do something right in office, maybe more than one thing, in the specific areas of trade and wages coming up next on the broadcast. <laughs> And thanks. Brad and Desi are off today. Angie Quirer here keeping the chair warm and the mic hot and the view as optimistic as possible. So moving to our next chapter of Activism 2017, let's talk a little bit about trade, which was a fight even under Barack Obama. And who knows where that's going to go under, gag on this, President Donald Trump, or if he gives up and leaves, as some of us anticipate, President Mike Pence. Let's talk to Dave Johnson, who's been following the trade trade picture for a long time. (laughs) The trade picture for a long time with our future.org, which is now a project of People's Action. And he's got his own blog where he covers a great deal of trade called Seeing the Forest. Dave, it is always lovely to talk to you. How bad is Trump?
3: Hi, Angie. Thanks for having me on. How bad is Trump? Well, I've been saying that the worst case scenario is for Trump to do anything he said he'd do. But on trade, like with everything else, we have no clue what he's really going to do, and he won't give a press conference. And he and we, di- we simply have no clue what kind of policies he'll pursue. But on trade, at least we can look at some of his appointments. Uh, his transition advisor on trade is a guy I've met who runs a steel company. There's a good sign in some ways. Uh, he's appointed a special trade advisor now named Peter Navarro, who has been warning about problems we have with trade with China and how the things they're doing are taking so many jobs and the trade deficit problem. So those are interesting. I'll go that far. But I got to point out, Trump gave an interview in, I think, 2015 to the Detroit Free Press in which he said his trade ideas are that we have to drive our wages down and taxes down so far that companies won't have a need to move You know, they'll feel a need. I don't call it a need anyway, but they will feel like they need to move to other countries to get cheap labor. He Mm -hmm. wants he said he wants to drive wages down so far here that they don't do that. So yippee. So that's where we sit. That's where we sit. So but let's start with, uh, of course, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a big campaign issue, is gone Mm -hmm. for now. We'll see. But, in fact, can you
0: bring people up to date on that? Just just a thumbnail sketch of how that finally went away. I think people may not even have noticed it's gone.
3: Okay. The Trans-Pacific Partnership had been uh, negotiated and it was going to come before Congress. They were going to try to push it through in what's called the lame duck session of Congress between the election and the inauguration, mm-hmm. which I think is finished. Uh they didn't bring it up. And the reason they didn't bring it up, even though Republicans want it and they might have had enough Democratic votes, was that with a President Trump coming, the Republicans wouldn't do it. OK, so uh-huh. so we're saved from TPP. Mm-hmm. It, it appears dead. We'll see, uh, you know, Trump campaigned against it. So the odds are it's gone. If we if we were to revert to a President Pence, it would be back in about a minute. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things he said he would do in his first hundred days is renegotiate NAFTA. Mm -hmm. Now he never laid out what he would renegotiate it to do. Uh, Interestingly though, the, the people on our side, uh, people like the Democrats are having a, there's a big press conference tomorrow. A number of Democrats are going to talk about how they would proceed with NAFTA uh, but today, right now, we have the AFL-CIO, the uh, umbrella organization of all the labor groups. On the 20th of December, they came out with uh, six ways we could improve NAFTA for working people. And that's a good guideline. Yeah. Uh, it, do you want me to go through quickly?
0: Couple, yeah. How, how about a couple of high points?
3: All right. Now, these are the things to look for. And if Trump is is really going to do good for workers on trade— We have no idea. We doubt it. There's Mm -hmm. no signs that he will. But these are the steps he would follow. Now, the first one is eliminate this private justice system for foreign investors or or that we called corporate courts. Right. Where they they have this thing called the ISDS, uh, the uh, Investor... Oh, boy, I've had a nice vacation. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody's writing yeah. this down. It's okay. <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay, ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement. There, it came back to me. Okay. Uh, that takes uh, disputes between corporations and governments to a private court with corporate attorneys where they could say, well, we don't like that you decided not to build this oil pipeline. This is an actual case going before in ISDS under NAFTA, and so we're suing your government for doing this. Mm. The uh, uh, they say that just shouldn't be a part of these trade deals. That was initially set up for if a banana republic—if—if uh, they're—if ju- you're going to build a railroad in some country that's run by some dictator, and the dictator decides to seize the railroad and give it to his brother-in-law, right? Okay, then you have a way before you build the railroad of having an agreement that. If there's a dispute like that, you can get it resolved. Now, by applying that to our country, they're saying, well, corporations feel democracy is just like a banana republic and we don't want to go through your court system. OK, mm-hmm. anyway. OK, the second uh, of the six is improve the labor and environment side treaties of NAFTA. Uh One of the things that happened under Clinton was they came out with these labor and environment because it wasn't in NAFTA. They came out with these side agreements, totally unenforced, totally weak, uh, and they're not doing anything to help labor or the environment in NAFTA. Mm -hmm. So those need to be improved. We need to have strong labor standards and environmental standards if we're going to have these trade agreements. The third one is address currency manipulation by creating binding rules. Right now, we have these loose rules and we don't enforce them. Mm-hmm. Fourth one, I know I'm talking a lot. Sorry. No,
0: I'm getting this, though. This is good stuff.
3: Oh, OK. Uh, the fourth one is upgrade NAFTA's rules of origin. Now, this is kind of complicated, but it says that because we've made this agreement, then the NAFTA countries get to have, you know, th- there will be only a small percentage of auto parts, et cetera, can be coming from outside of NAFTA to not get a tariff. Uh, And I think it's it's something like 35%. TPP changed that to 65 or something percent so that 65% of a car or auto parts or something could have been made in China and still not have the tariff situation that applies to trade partners. Anyway, so they need to improve these rules of origin, especially on autos because that's such a big business, but in general to not have the trade agreement leak things from countries that aren't parties to this come through without tariffs because mm-hmm. that erodes uh, wages. Mm-hmm.
0: So this uh, is these are all items that, at least on the face of it, Trump could address, but because he hasn't said specifically what direction right. he wants to change NAFTA right. in, we don't know.
3: Right, but if he were going to do it in order to raise wages here and help jobs and help our trade deficit, that's what he would do. Got There's it. two more. I'll go quickly. Uh, the, okay. the second to last one is Right now, there's a procurement chapter, and it undermines Buy America laws. Mm-hmm. That there are these trade agreements prohibit us from when we do tax dollars like the stimulus from saying that, like the roads and stuff and the bridges, they have to be built with American steel. It kind of makes sense if you're trying to stimulate America's economy, and you need to build you know infrastructure and stuff by American steel. Well, yes. trade agreements prohibit that, so we would change NAFTA to to. to uh, not undermine that. And then the last one is upgrade to the trade enforcement chapter. We don't enforce these things. We make these agreements. We let stuff come into the country without any tariffs so they can pay a dollar an hour and get this huge advantage. And we don't have a border tariff to address that. And then they don't even enforce these rules that they at least put in saying, look, you can't kill labor <laughs> organizers. And we don't enforce it. We don't enforce that with Colombia, for example. Right. So, So all of these are things that undermine American wages and jobs and America's economy because of the trade deficit there. So those are some things that could be done. Again, we have no clue. He made all these promises on trade and people ignored that free press interview where he said the way to fix trade is to lower American wages to third world levels and then – uh, companies won't won't try to get lower wages elsewhere.
0: You know, that could have been put up on billboards across America and people would have voted for him
3: anyway. I know. I wrote about it and wrote about it, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. The, the election didn't seem to cover very many issues, did it?
0: Yeah. You know, now that you bring it up.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what,
0: yeah. You know, the yeah. interesting thing about Trump is, I mean, I understand we don't have a crystal ball. We can't look ahead and say, well, this is what he will do. But we have what he stated in the past, as you bring up, that may give an honest peek into what he cares to do. And then we look at his divided loyalties right now. I mean, his daughter is running a clothing, jewelry, accessories, yeah. mini empire that uses some of the very mechanisms that he says he is against. So for one thing, I can imagine some of the dinner table conversations. But the other thing is, you know, there's what's good for the country. There's what he's saying to the country. And then there's what he'll actually do when push comes to shove. And it affects his daughter or his sons.
3: Yeah. Well, there's another divided loyalty is the entire Republican apparatus and the Congress and the entire corporate structure that's backing Trump and, and Republicans wants to do the opposite of what he implied he will do. They want to be sure they can get the lowest possible wages with the fewest possible employees, which is the opposite of what Trump said. So, so he can he can say what he wants. They can override his uh, vetoes of things. I don't think Democrats would join him, mm-hmm. but but now they're just lining up behind Trump. So we're, I don't know. Nobody knows, and he won't give press conferences, and and we're in totally uncharted territory. I mean, the the not giving press conferences thing is is kind of astonishing that we don't we the people get no information from our supposed government that's coming in well
0: They're, and now we have that weird we have that <laughs> weird declaration now from the wall street journal that even if he were to hold a conference and say something that were a blatant lie they were not going to call those lies because they think that's editorializing or moralizing so yep. when information does start to come out, even if it's completely inaccurate or he's positing something that clearly isn't true, we can't anticipate finding that out. Since we're positing this hour as as something of a guidebook as to how to move forward, uh, let's try to read some other tea leaves and see how that would affect potential activism. If we're talking about the best trade arrangements for the U.S., for the workers, and we look at the appointments that he is making to his cabinet and his advisory positions, what do we know about those people and what do we know about advocating with or against those people?
3: People like uh, Puzder, Pudzer, Pudzner, the labor secretary, Yes. who, who runs a low-wage, uh, wage theft chain of uh, fast food places, a couple of them. Uh, it's not good signs about what's coming because he's appointed these billionaires who rely on the lowest possible wages. Uh, how can we address this? Uh, we need to have uh, clearly well-organized people helping back up the Democrats that are in the House and Senate to try to stop some of this. But but it's, it's a matter of getting the word out past the walls that Trump supporters have built around themselves as far as receiving accurate information. Mm hmm. You know, there that might means, be. That means you, by the way, with on the radio and things like
0: that. Well, Doing the it's best, all, can on you, here. It's <laughs> all on you, Angie. It's all on you. I'll get right on it, Dave. Yeah, right. Get on it. Well, you know something that Van Jones said over the weekend, and, and I mentioned this a little earlier in the show. Something he said really resonated with me. I have felt absolutely no compassion for the Trump voters at all since the election—none, zero. And then when Van Jones advocated a couple days ago to see the possible manifestation of the Democratic Party in the future as the real party of the underdogs, as really embracing the left, as really working for the workers and the little people. Just the use of the phrase underdog made me think if I can see the potential Trump voter or the actual Trump voter as someone who is fighting against being an underdog, maybe I can relate on that level. If I'm not going too far afield of your own thought pattern, is that any way that we might engage? gauge Trump voters on financial and trade issues yes. by making and it clear Trump, we know who they are and we know what they're up against?
3: Yes, I, I would say yes to some extent. Uh, a lot of people who voted for Obama twice voted for Trump in places like, uh, you know, the the, the, the Ohio, Iowa, uh, Michigan, you know, places places where they used to have good jobs and now they have low wage jobs if they have jobs at all a lot of people right and that's black and white now the black people knew better than to and others knew better than to fall for a lot of the trump stuff but there's a information gap that i feel that a lot of people have where they're not getting accurate information and they're not and that doesn't didn't really leave them a whole lot of choice if they feel they are going to fix things mm-hmm. i mean trump had a simple message he said Fire bad, basically. He said, you know, the the Frankenstein from Saturday Night Live. Fire bad. (laughs) But he said, I will fix it. Mm -hmm. That was his message. I will fix it. And he offered hope to people who have gone through quite a bit of change. Uh, And those people did not hear contrasting messages. They heard lies. A lot of lies through the information sources available to them. You and I follow news a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we don't follow news a lot, then what happens is the stuff that breaks through is what we hear and what we're then going to think about. And so I I don't have a lot of sympathy for Trump voters who voted, you know, for a racist, misogynist, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. But – as far as if you look at how people respond historically, internationally to the problems they have, the loss of jobs, the boarded up downtowns and boarded up factories. and I, I mean, I travel to Flint every year, the homes falling apart, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they see it coming from trade and Trump saying, I'm going to fix this. They didn't hear the other side addressing this. Right. I didn't hear the other side addressing this. And I follow the news. So, yes, I say it's time to make a real change and have the Democrats clearly stand up for the underdog, not just uh, say so.
0: I, I, I'm glad you went this direction because it gives me a chance to push an article that I read from David Atkins the other day in the Atlantic Monthly about the importance of engaging the cranky voter. And in a sense, there's stuff that he's Washington saying. in the Yes. Thank you. Uh, Washington Monthly. And. In a sense, we've heard some of that before, that you have to appeal to emotions rather than to logic. But he does go further than that. And he talks about really understanding how people are feeling and meeting them on that ground. And that's essentially what you just said, is that, you know, that's where we fell down hard. So I'm glad you brought that up. There's a
3: key part of what I said, though, and that is that our information sources simply are not reaching them at all. Mm -hmm. That's key here. Uh, We do not have... uh, good funding for our media. And the right has put literally billions into their media, including Fox News, to reach those people with whatever they want them to believe. We have no sources that reach them at all. And we might not know how, but we're going to have to do that. I mean, even on Twitter, thousands of Russian bots pushing Trump, okay? Yes. Our site didn't have that sort of a thing going on see if you look at and analyze how to reach people that's an important part of this equation in my opinion
0: you are always a wonder to talk to i appreciate it so much dave thank you for spending some time thanks for having me on. and that's a wrap on the broadcast. brad and desi return tomorrow i have very much enjoyed my time with you i hope it's been on the same on your end and i hope to be in your ear again soon to each of you individually and to the whole world good luck
3: I'm hey. not